Ready Player One explores a future society's addiction to escapism and pulp culture, which prompts the question, is it a sin for Christians to obsess with pulp culture? Are you just watching episode 80, Ready Player One? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we're going to actually do a fun review this time around, I think. This, this movie, yeah, This movie was a lot of fun, and I had no idea what I was going in for when I went to see it. It was, it was a total cold read for me. It, yeah, it's another movie that's an adaptation of a book, which, you know, I want to say it seems like more of them are hitting Hollywood. Yeah. But I think that may just be my perception because it's more of a geek thing hitting Hollywood now. Mm. Well, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I think there are a lot of novel adaptations that even stuff that we would never even dream of of reviewing. I, I mean, like, what was it? The Fifty Shades of Grey? And... <laughs> that was barely fan fiction, yeah. let alone a book, apparently. Yes. Not that I've read it. No, no. And I haven't read it either. And I have no intention of ever seeing the movies. And there's more than one now. But those were novel adaptations. And then we have all of the teen flicks now are almost always coming from books, you know, like the yeah. Twilight series and the Divergent and trying to think of what some of the other ones are but they're all coming i mean uh hunger games yeah the hunger games and then there there was there's been a few more there's been a whole slew yeah. of them so they're all coming from novels so i think Maze you're Runner. right it is it is something that's that's going around well you know what they say about original ideas and nothing and new under Hollywood the sun and all that yep. <laughs> that's straight out of yeah, ecclesiastes was it this, uh, yeah <laughs> you know it, it's interesting <laughs> just jumping right in Halliday, James Halliday reminded me of the writer of Ecclesiastes. That was Solomon, right? Uh -huh. Solomon wrote it. Yes. The, or the way, actually, it was the preacher. <laughs> the preacher. Yeah. The uh, the way that he, it, uh, you know, it, it's all about his regrets. It, it put me in the mind of Ecclesiastes, and I've never actually done a study of Ecclesiastes. You have, haven't mm -hmm. you? Yes, I have. I did it when I was in a singles group many years ago. It was a very, very interesting study. That's one I highly recommend. <laughs> that would be an interesting one. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that you just kind of gloss over when you read Ecclesiastes. And, and I think Ecclesiastes will tie really well into a discussion on this movie. So we can come back to it later. Yeah. Uh, the score for Ready Player One is by Alan Silvestri. And our old friend. Our old friend. He has done so many amazing scores. I was I went back through his Wikipedia page because I, off the top of my head, I couldn't think of what he'd done. And it just blew my mind how many of my favorite movies that he scored through the years. I mean, he's been doing scores since the 70s. Yeah. For the movies that he scored, he's second only to like... Uh... John Williams or... Yeah. I was thinking, who was the Disney guy that seems to score every Disney movie that we... Oh, I wouldn't put him up there with the greats. He's okay. The Italian though. guy, yeah. or whatever the Italian last name. I don't think he's actually Gian, Italian. Guacchino. I'll get it in a minute. <laughs> I always want to mess his name up, but yeah. But this one, I really felt like it, it made me think it wasn't actually copying any famous scores, but mm -hmm. there were aspects of it that really made me think of other movies. And I don't know that I I honestly don't think he was copying anybody. I think he was paying homages to the spirit of the summer blockbuster from like the 80s because the whole pop culture feel of the 80s is is kind of what is the foundation for the story. Mm -hmm. So I really feel like he was using the score to kind of bring those elements out a little. Yeah, he he did a really good job yeah, with it. Yeah, it was it's fabulous. Really it he really built the you know, the internal adrenaline, the musical adrenaline mm -hmm. and, uh, manipulated us very well, <laughs> which is not something that we should probably be good, happy with. But. Yeah. Well, that's why we go to movies, right? Yeah. And why we Th don't and why we don't just watch. <laughs> but should we escape? Yeah, we'll get to that. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. <laughs> I didn't mean to give a spoiler there. <laughs> well, let's listen to just a little bit of some of the music from Ready Player One.
funny they did have a song I had actually watched the music video for Take On Me uh, recently wasn't that in there? That wasn't there. Was I know it referenced it uh, because it, it was uh, listed as Halliday's favorite song, yeah. wasn't it? But yeah, I went down memory lane the other day and saw a movie video of, of Alha's take on me. And I was like, wow, I never watched music videos when I was in the 80s. I should have. Some of them were actually pretty good. <laughs> Probably most of them were really bad, but that one particularly was really good. It's on YouTube. They were, they were really good for their time. Yeah. <laughs> it's all like uh, motion-driven line art. Oh, yeah, 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 I remember that one. Yeah, now. it's really cool. And I, I don't know who dreamed up the storyboarding for that music video, but it was really quite amazing to watch. And when you put it in its time, it, it's pretty cool. But we're not yeah. here to talk about music videos from the 80s. We're here to talk about a movie that talks about things from the 80s. A lot. Lots of stuff from the 80s. Yeah. Actually, you know, that's one of the complaints that a lot of the people who have read the book have going into the movie uh-huh. was that the plot point of the Ready Player One book is that Halliday is obsessed with the 1980s specifically. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the movie, they take it from starting in the 80s and they they have references all the way through. Mm. And it actually, it it plays very well in the movie and it makes sense because, you know, it's player-driven content that you're seeing. Right. Halliday himself is still obsessed with the 80s, but you're seeing avatars and uh, vehicles from everybody's favorites. Right. From, you know, 50 through 15. Right. So there's all kinds of stuff that's that's referenced in there that just goes on and on and on. You can't get away from it. Yeah. I love the whole part. You could go rock climbing with Batman. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't think I'd trust that guy not to drop me. This was a Steven Spielberg movie, of course. I mean, it's kind of like an obvious, of course. <laughs> Something like this could only come from the genius that is Steven Spielberg. I happen to always like, well, I won't say I always like, but I predominantly like Steven Spielberg movies. Yeah, he doesn't put out a lot of stuff that, you know, is unlikable. Uh, maybe stuff that's not in my vein. but. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing that I noticed, and for our longtime listeners, if we have any that have held on with us since the very beginning when Daniel and I started this podcast, one of the first movies that we uh, reviewed was the movie Surrogates, which came out in 2009, which was the year we started the podcast. And when we were talking about that movie, we were talking about how it just made no sense that there was this like massive plot hole and surrogates that everybody was going to the expense of building these giant android perfect android and then they would sit at home and experience life through the androids right when they could just as easily and much more cheaply have built a virtual world to do the same thing in and this was back in 2009 when we were saying this and lo and behold here comes along ready player one which is basically the identical premise of escapism through being who you want to be and they even brought out, like, in, in surrogates that you could be in an opposite sex body. Mm-hmm. You could be a different age. You could be anything. You could be skinny instead of fat. You could be a girl instead of a guy. I mean, it was all... You could be animated. You could be a robot. Well, in Ready Player One, you can. But oh, in, yeah, that's true. In, yeah, um, in surrogates. In surrogates, it was, it was... They were appearing like real people, like the perfection of of the real people, but you never knew who was behind the surrogate. Surrogates and Ready Player One are sort of like opposite sides of the same coin. Yeah. One's uh, reality in a virtual body, and the other one is virtual reality. Yeah. <laughs> Just, uh, okay, the, the analogy didn't quite work, but... Uh, yeah, but you know, that, that was that whole concept when we were discussing that is, you know, the whole wanting a, the perfect self, wanting to, to put your best face forward and your best, I don't know, to, to present a, a different person to the world. And because even Wade, the character in Ready Player One, says that everybody went to the Oasis to meet people because that's where everybody, all the people were. And so you didn't leave your house to meet people. You went into a virtual reality to meet people, but then you didn't know if the people you were meeting were real. So there definitely is some interesting parallels between the two movies and it'd be interesting to explore that more i really had a hard time thinking of anything that i didn't like in this movie nothing that really Mm. jumped out at me as being a negative 
But I did see what I considered a little bit of a plot hole. And it's very, very, very minor. When people are using their own credit to join the Oasis, they're buying their avatars, right? So when they create their avatar, it's something they're creating on their own credit. And when they, what do they call it when they get kicked out of the game? They uh, When they uh, despawn or whatever. when they... Yeah. Uh, they lose all their credit. All It always turns into coins. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yep. When Samantha, the real person, Samantha, is taken into the loyalty program at IOI, and then we have to explain that the loyalty program is really a chain gang, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. debtor's prison kind of thing. She then re-enters the Oasis as one of IOI's Sixers. But you see her as her avatar dressed up in a Sixer suit. Yeah. It's that actually, uh, I don't really have a problem with that since the way that I would do, you know, a virtual world like this is the avatar would be specifically identified to the person. I actually think the problem is on the other side. Why did all the Sixers look exactly the same mm. unless maybe corporate policy required it? But see, that's the thing. She she wasn't an employee. She was an indentured servant. Mm-hmm. And the whole indentured servitude thing made me think of the uh, the 19th century coal mines mm-hmm. in the U.S. where, you know, you would hire on as a coal miner and then you would be forced to buy everything through the company store to the point where you they debt. would manipulate the prices mm-hmm. so that you could never, ever possibly get out of debt. Right. At least on a chain gang, you only have a sentence <laughs> and you could conf- eventually get through your sentence. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people died in the mines. Yeah. Well, it looked like people died in the loyalty centers in here because she said her father died in the loyalty center. Yeah. Yeah. That was an interesting motivation for her. Mm-hmm. But that that was a, a really minor thing that only just came to me. I mean, it didn't like bother me in the movie while I was watching it. It was just uh, yeah. I was doing some research on the actress and I saw pictures of her uh-huh. avatar in the Sixer costume. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because she was joining through the IOI link. She should have just picked up a generic avatar from their system when she joined, mm-hmm. you know, especially when she was masquerading as one of the Sixers. Uh, yeah, it, that that's where it starts to fall apart yeah. because she pretends to be one of the Sixers. But uh, how does she get away with it? Because all the other Sixers look exactly the same. Right. It's not a major plot hole or anything. It was just yeah. something that point that it. And I think that they did it so that you wouldn't lose track of her because ha- about half the movie is virtual. And if you weren't following the character that you knew, you would quickly figure out, okay, is that Artemis or is she just one of the other, yeah. <laughs> one of the other yeah, exactly. soldiers? So it helped you keep track of who she was. So it, it wasn't badly done. It just didn't make mm-hmm. sense to me. It might have been just a choice to help the audience keep track of her. I think that's a, a really good point. Yeah. Uh, for me, coming into the movie, I had actually read Ready Player One uh, almost immediately after it came out. I, I stumbled on it. I think it was a an Amazon Recommends thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I had read that by the time that I bought it, and I bought it within a month of it coming out, Klein had already sold the rights to the movie to Spielberg. So, you know, his publisher must have shopped it around to Hollywood and say, hey, you got to make this. But I had read it, so I went in with the idea, especially after Wrinkle in Time, mm-hmm. with the idea that it wasn't going to match. And and we all know that you can't do everything in the movie, yeah. That you that you do in the book and stuff you uh, picture in your own head isn't going to be the same in the movie. There were a lot of changes, mm. a lot of changes between the book and the movie, but they were not bad changes. They were understandable changes. Very few that I really wish they hadn't done, mm-hmm. and generally all of them made sense. Uh, the one thing that I wish they had done differently was in the book, the character of Ogden Morrow actually becomes a mentor to the High Five group mm-hmm. about halfway through and uh, helps them out because he is decidedly anti-IOI IOI as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. I think he does help a little bit in the movie. I mean, the the extra life is the reason why Wade was able to f- complete the challenge. Yeah, and I think that was a nod to his role in the book. They they really did need to trim his role down. Mm-hmm. The other reason that I'm disappointed that they did it 
was because Ogden Morrow in the movie is played by Simon Pegg. <laughs> Who's your favorite actor? Who is among my favorite actors. <laughs> it, it, Simon Pegg and Martin Freeman. If we can get those two in a comic film, man, I would be all over that. <laughs> British comedy. <laughs> uh, besides my fanboying out there, uh, I really didn't have a lot that I didn't like in the movie. It's, I, I liked most of the changes. Uh, Sorrento was made significantly less dark mm. in the movie. Uh, even even when they did the uh, a major, major uh, uh, event in, in the book and in the movie, he, in the movie, is made to be slightly less culpable. Mm. Uh, but in the book, He's, you know, behind everything mm-hmm. and much more maniacal and uh, and everything. But, it may, you know, I think that making villains completely evil, while it, it plays to a certain need, necessary part of every story, you know, to have the yeah. good versus the evil. I don't think it's necessarily um, the correct way to portray humanity, because I don't yeah. I don't think, you know, Satan is evil, but I don't think that. It would be very rare to find somebody who is so disgustingly evil that they don't have a good motivation behind what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, it wouldn't be realistic to have, and, and I really felt like, even though this movie was science fiction, I really felt like it was going for r- realism, and that this was a real future that's possible, and yeah. w- with real people doing battle over the hearts and minds of people, and... Well- that that's the thing for me though is is uh, Sorrento was made to be more of a bumbling idiot, uh, well not a bumbling idiot but a, a more clueless bumbler in the movie than he was in the book. But when it comes to writing, when you're writing your villain, right? Mm-hmm. The villain is the hero in his own story. That's the mantra, right? So uh, even the most evil of villain believes. Well, not even the most evil villain, but most literary villains believe they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even for the right reasons. And I didn't really get that sense with Sorrento in the movie. He was just doing it for greed. <laughs> but, I mean, those people are out there, too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Definitely got the evil corporation feel. I almost feel like this is a commentary on some of the software companies of the 80s as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole idea of of like Apple versus Microsoft in their original forms. <laughs> uh, not necessarily what they are, not the giants they are today, where they're run by committee for the most part, but when they were visionaries of individual people. But I don't, I mean, it's not a direct commentary, but that's, I, I've seen the Pirates of Silicon Valley. Have you seen that movie? No, it, it's on my watch list, but I've never gotten around to <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, I've seen it a couple times, and it's amazing how there are aspects of this movie that made me think of that. You know, it's like this <laughs> uh, this kind of rivalry between these. They're basically just geeks, you know, who yeah. came up with these ideas, and then they're kind of like battling on the corporate world, but they're not really corporate people. And I really felt like that's who Holiday and Morrow were. Morrow. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but... Now they're up against, you know, this whole corporate vision of we're we're in it to make money. And and I think we can maybe tackle that a little later in our discussion. But there there are aspects of this movie that reminded me of of some of that. And it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. pop culture, but what was going on in the corporate world world as well in the 80s, because that was where all of this started. And I really felt like the author and the movie were making commentary on some of that. Agreed. Definitely yeah. agreed. Speaking of Halliday, uh, the guy who plays Halliday is Mark Rylance. Mm-hmm. And I want to say he did an incredible job as a extremely introverted, socially awkward uh, Halliday, which is really uh, very similar to how I pictured him in the book and, and mm-hmm. portrayed him really well. Um, and he actually, uh, not surprisingly, he played both the roles of Halliday and Halliday's avatar Anorak and the way that he differed the portrayal of the personality for the real world Halliday versus the the avatar Anorak I thought was mm-hmm. nice and subtle and really commendable. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think we can, we probably already spoiled the movie a couple times because it was really hard to discuss all of that without letting something slip through. But from now on, there definitely will be spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie yet um, and you mind spoilers, then you might want to stop now. But I don't know that it's really necessary to warn people of that because if they're listening, they probably have already seen the movie by this point. Yeah, this movie doesn't have a lot in the way of reveals. No. I mean, it, it doesn't have any significant twists. It doesn't really... It's one of those movies you go into knowing the basics from the trailer and just going along for the ride. Yeah. I mean, there were some things that we could say that might ruin a couple scenes, but it's not like we would ruin the whole movie. Uh, you, you would enjoy yeah. the movie regardless. I mean, like the race, you know, if we talked about the, the, the first challenge to get the first key... That kind yeah, of that's, thing. That's where the spoilers are. Yeah. And the solutions to the... Uh, to the challenges. The challenges. Yeah. yeah that's... Which we don't actually have on our discussion list anyway. So <laughs> there are other important things in the movie to talk about. Oh, you know what? That that was another thing that I wish they had done a little bit differently, but I don't think they could have. Mm-hmm. Was uh, the books made a really big deal over how much work went into solving the puzzles. Mm-hmm. And the puzzles were really intricate in the book. But uh, I don't know how they could have. Yeah, that's probably easier to do in print than it is on the screen. Yeah, significantly, <laughs> significantly so. The The whole challenge aspect was really, really thinned, you know, dumbed and thin, thinned down yeah. for the movie. I, I wish there had been a way, but then it would have been an eight-hour movie. I was going to say, as it a was. A miniseries, a 16-part miniseries yeah. or something like that. As it was, I really felt like the movie felt long. And it's, I think it was. It was like yeah. two hours, wasn't it? Yeah, it felt long. And I, I, and not that I have a problem with that. I mean, it, it didn't feel overly long. It just felt long. It was a two-hour and 20-minute movie. Wow. It was yeah. long. Okay. Well, that explains it why feel, it felt it long. It didn't feel <laughs> that long to yeah. me, though. <laughs> But yeah, it, it it felt like a long movie, and but it, in a good way, in that I felt like I was getting a lot of bang for my buck, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I um I stayed all the way to the end of the credits, which I was the only one in the theater who did. I guess if it's not Marvel, people don't bother. But <laughs> fools. <laughs> well, there wasn't any like teasers or anything, but I like. I'm, yeah, but I'm, they'll miss one eventually. I'm yeah. sure of it. <laughs> I'm I'm just more. I've always just been intrigued by the people that work on films and and you know reading through some of the credits. It's not like I read every name or everything. Yeah. My wife and I sat through the entire credits too, and, and yeah. that's actually how I discovered that one of the Avatar designers in the credits list was Steven Spielberg's daughter. <laughs> that's cool. Well, I was pretty amazed that the list of courtesies ofs, c- courtesy of, courtesy ofs. How would you say that? The uh, um, the list. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, there was a whole list of of uh, references to trademarked and copyrighted items, and they had to, you know, obviously give them, you know, courtesy in the credits because you you can't use a trademarked item without permission and mm-hmm. and there was a ton of trademarked items in this movie and the list just went forever and i i just thought it was really fun to see because you know you were, if you went through and tried to list them all it would have taken forever but they had to list them all in the credits yeah <laughs> yeah and i can't imagine the legal person who had to make sure okay did we get our bases covered on that one <laughs> it's i actually went back and i pulled up a couple uh you know, uh, YouTube videos and and websites that list out the as many references as pe- as people have found so uh-huh. far. Um, because one thing that caught my interest was that there were almost no references to Disney properties. Well, that would make sense. It's not a Disney movie; they couldn't. And Disney's very, very tight fisted with their exactly. properties. <laughs> yeah, um, the. The two references that they left in are actually straight from the book, uh-huh. and that's when um, when Wayne Watts is talking about the alliteration in his name, mm-hmm. Peter Parker, like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner, uh-huh. and those are straight. That's a line straight out of the book. So I'm, I, I, it's interesting that they didn't have to cut that, and mm-hmm. I I am curious as to what the legal considerations are with that. 
but there were no Star Wars. Yeah. There was no uh I suspect there was no, on, on uh, that particular Marvel. one, I suspect it was just because they said them, they didn't show them that they could get I mean Peter Parker and Bruce Banner are both names in in pulp culture. Yeah. Because fair, fair use. Yeah, they're kind of fair use kind of thing. If they had actually shown Spider Man or or anything like that, I mean Spider Man's been around long enough that you, you can't break him completely out of pulp culture people and even the reference i mean like wade is his his name may have been you know a a key off of you know superhero name like that with the alliteration but also he's living with an aunt (laughs) so his parents are dead he's an orphan let's see (laughs) this guy really just is destined to be a superhero yeah exactly so anyway this movie is full of all these pop culture references and initially i was kind of like thinking that it was kind of odd because this is like in the future and this guy is like seems to be obsessed with the 80s and even like the really early 80s and late 70s Mm -hmm. you know and i mean there's like these old video games that i only vaguely remember i mean they were like very early in my life (laughs) and back when they weren't really video they were just more pixels on a screen (laughs) i i I remember them all i'm afraid Uh, and maybe that was just my my exposure level. Maybe it was just yeah. I, you know where I was was at that time in my life. I wasn't exposed to them as much. But and I I I was a computer geek even even back you know when I was ten years old. Well, so. I was a computer geek because my dad programmed computers before there were even such things as computers. When you had to build them in your own house and. Um, they didn't have name brands on them because you got all the parts and put them together, and you had these big Radio giant Jack. floppy disks and. Yeah. yeah. Um and I was playing games in base in Basic A and learning how to program in Basic A before most people even knew what it, before computer was like a term, you know, people knew. Um but gaming was a totally different era, you know, a t- totally different thing back then because you had like well, I don't know. We don't need to go all no. the, we don't have to get all into that, but needless to say, I was a little worried about the aging of of the characters and all that. But then when I did the math, I was like, "Uh Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least it's set in the future. And all the old people who are actually our age (laughs) are really old then. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I worked out in 2045. I will, I will be in my seventies and wow. (laughs) What are you going to (sighs) do? Yeah. It's better than the alternative. Yeah, if I'm still alive in 2045. <laughs> but you brought up an interesting point in our notes that I actually decided that we should spend a lot of time on. And that's, is it okay for Christians to be enamored with pulp culture? Because mm. we're living in an era where we do a lot of that. I mean, and and even just like the, the existence of this podcast where we are talking about culture, not necessarily pulp culture. But the whole point yeah. of this podcast is, to, you know, to delve into secular culture, entertainment-wise, and and I and I think that that you bring up a good point. Well, it, it it's one that's argued uh, quite a bit mm-hmm. online whether or not it's even a uh, a proper use of a Christian's time. Yeah. To to go to the movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's you know very strong arguments are are made. Uh, in it mm-hmm. and really I think it comes down to your interpretation of scripture and, and the, the one that I was sort of forming uh, this question around was uh, John seventeen fourteen through 19 uh, where Jesus is, is praying and he says I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are, are <clears throat> for they are uh, not of the world any more than I am of the world my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. Mm-hmm. They are not of the world, even I, as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Mm-hmm. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Yeah. And it, for me, that one... It's a it's a tough one for me because I know that, you know, our purpose is to glorify God, mm-hmm. to bring cl- God glory. And we're not we're not really doing that when we go to see the movies. But 
every uh, when we when we do uh, by doing this podcast we're trying to bring glory to God when we interact with uh with non-believers we're trying to bring glory to God we're trying to be good witnesses and i think there's another side to that too i mean jesus spoke in parables and i feel like that there is value in stories and in storytelling mm. and i Absolutely. i don't think that that pulp culture is necessarily evil because it's worldly but i i think that it can it, it's more of what it what position it takes in your life like what priority you put it on your scale of priorities so in the instance of what we see in this movie i feel like it could if you put a christian into this oasis and like in the in let's say we were alive in the 2040s and yeah. and we are along with the other people in the oasis spending hours and hours of our day in Halliday's journal trying to find the answers to the riddles to help us find these keys and we're neglecting our spiritual walk and our time with the Lord because of that then that is an idol and it comes under idolatry mm -hmm. and it and it's the same thing in our life today if we allow the worldly things in our lives to take priority over our walk with the Lord and, and doing the business of, of God you know the mission that he gave all of us then then it is an idol and we're putting it it's something we're putting above god and then it is a sin. exactly it, it's very interesting because as it's presented in this movie i mean you could almost see that it's almost like a religion in this movie because holidays holidays journal is almost like a temple when you walk yep. into it it has that feeling of a temple like it's like it's hallowed ground and holiday is almost like a type of god who's playing games with people's lives mm -hmm. i mean there's definitely a parallel there yeah in the movie it it looks much worse than it was in in the book it, <laughs> yeah but again it, it it comes down to how are they going to show uh you know the extent of the oasis and in in the book uh the oasis is the education system you don't go to a physical school anymore you go to a virtual school uh, yeah a, a virtual school that was designed by halliday mm-hmm and you don't go to a physical church anymore. The churches are all in the oasis. Mm -hmm. And they take virtual tours of the Holy Land. And, mm -hmm. oh. you know, everything Everything was in there. And in the movie, they everyone appears to be obsessed with Halliday and his Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a necessary, uh, that was a the necessary point of the perception. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But in the book, it wasn't. Yeah. I, I mean... It, all the characters were all the characters and all the main characters in the books were because mm -hmm. it was about Gunters, right? But uh, but all those people you remember in the opening scene of the movie where Wade's going down the stack and it, you see all the different mm -hmm. people in the Oasis. None of them were really all that interested in the eggs, except you know if somebody started getting it, it was like a sporting event, right? Yeah. I understand that, and and I get that, and yeah. I, but I think that the the, the parallels that they were draw, drawing in the movie, it kind of set it up as a type of religion. It maybe not everybody in the oasis was participating in the religion, but there was yeah. there was an aspect of what Halliday was doing with his quest that was very religion like. And yeah, it definitely the, the Gunters definitely crossed the line. In particular, yeah. Artemis in mm -hmm. the movie, I think, crossed that line with her obsession over. Uh, ensuring IOI. Right. And one of the things that I thought about uh, in, in talking about idolatry and, you know, your level of priorities and stuff and whether or not pop culture is good for Christians was this entire verse. And just when I read this, instead of hearing food, hear, hear pop culture instead. So I'm, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 8, and this is verses 4 through 13. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we all the, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. For take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That is probably, I think, where these kind of things collide Mm -hmm. in, in our Christian walk. Because some of us are strong enough Christians to be able to enjoy pop culture, to get involved in movies, and to be able to expose ourselves to like, Netflix shows that are rated MA without sliding in our faith. But if we are in a fellowship of believers where there are people who can be caused to stumble, let's say by sex scenes in an MA TV show or violence in a a movie or, or something like that in their walk with the Lord, if they see us doing it and it encourages them to do it because we do it, then we are responsible for them sliding. Yeah. Yeah, actually, while while you were reading that, it 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 uh, put me in mind of another scripture, um, Matthew fifteen seventeen through twenty, mm-hmm. where uh, Christ takes a moment to explain uh, a parable, and he says, uh, "Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But things that come out of a person's." mouth come from the heart and these defile them for out of the heart will come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false testimony slander these are what defile a person but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them Mm -hmm. oh that's right he wasn't explaining a parable he was um he was commenting on the pharisees making fun of the apostles for not washing their hands before they ate and i think this is the same thing where uh, it's not what you take in that defiles you. Mm-hmm. It's how you present yourself, whether or not it you allow it to uh, to affect your witness. Right. And when Daniel and I first started this podcast, we did an episode about the you know what it meant, what what crossing the line was, you know, too far for us. And for me, it was watching rated R movies, I believe for Daniel, I'm trying to remember now back to when we recorded that episode, he didn't want to watch anything that had sex in it. Mm-hmm. And we we were talking about our own personal walks, but I think we also did bring up in that podcast, the fact that we didn't want to cause anyone else to stumble as well. And yeah. I had a, a person stay with me once who was from a, a Mennonite background and they don't even allow TVs, you know, in their homes. And so during the summer that she was staying with me, I pretty much kept my TV off unless she wasn't in the house. And it, and it, it kind of broke me of the habit at least for a couple months. And, <laughs> but it was because I knew it was a stumbling block for her. And so I just stayed off of it while she was here. And I think that that is what our witness is, that we don't do things because we have we have the liberty in Christ to do whatever is not harmful to our walk with the Lord. But that doesn't mean that we should necessarily do it because it it can affect our witness. So as, as we're doing this podcast on a regular basis, sometimes we have discussed things, um, especially from Netflix, that are yeah. are not necessarily things that the vast majority of our listening audience should even watch. Uh, and we're not saying that you should watch it. And uh, I would say Tim and I probably walk a line sometimes as to what we should watch and what Agreed. we shouldn't watch. Um, yeah. But at the same time, we're we're watching it at, in the vein of not just watching. Like that's the whole point of this podcast is that we look for the underlying ideas. And I think that it's it can be useful Mm-hmm. to watch this stuff with the Bible in mind, with, you know, trying to figure out how you would use what you're learning from that um, to witness to somebody who actually enjoys it. Yeah. Yeah. It's that line, for instance, uh, some some of the uh, members of my uh, small Bible study group, uh, the Wednesday night Bible study group, uh, they watch Game of Thrones. Mm. But that's that, a toughie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, Game of Thrones crosses that line for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it crosses the line for a lot of Christians. 
I'm, yeah, I'm amazed yeah, right. at how many times I've seen that discussion going on Facebook about whether it's right for Christians to watch Game of Thrones. And another one for me, uh, slightly less um, contentious, is mm-hmm. MMA. Mm. Um, there are there are people at uh, at church who uh, who watch MMA, you know, who uh, follow MMA on a regular basis, and mm-hmm. I can't because mm-hmm. I just it. Yes, I know that they're both willing participants, but I I just see two people hurting each other, mm-hmm. and it bugs me. It really really bugs me. As we do this podcast, so we are constantly trying to keep God at the front of our mind, Mm -hmm. and um, we have to be cognizant of the idea that there are people out there watching this stuff, um, and we want to help them see it. Yeah, from a biblical worldview. We help them watch with a Christian uh, mindset. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, I agree. This is a fine line. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think we should avoid doing stuff like Game of Thrones or Alter Carbon or any of those. But bringing it back to this movie, it, it can be something. It doesn't even have to be that level of violence and, and horror. Yeah. It can be the level of a simple obsession with pop culture, which is what's going mm-hmm. what we're seeing going on in this movie. It can become an idol and it can be a sin and it can be wrong. And yep. so we have to we have to always take that into consideration when we get hooked on something, when we binge watch Netflix or when we get really into, let's say, the Lord of the Rings movies when they come out or that next thing you just got to see or your life isn't complete. You know, I, I know I remember when I was I was a Infinity kid. War. Yeah. When I was a kid, I kept thinking it's like, God, you can't come. Jesus, you can't return yet because so and so and so is going to happen this summer. It's, you know, um, <laughs> The the mind of a child, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I I always try to think, you know, when when I'm getting excited about something in, that's coming out and cultural, you know, cultural like a new movie or something, I always try to like, is this more important than Jesus's return? Because if you mm. always couch it in those in those um, idea, then that kind of gives you an idea of of what level it is in your priority system. If you would want Jesus to delay his return so that you could see this movie, you know, yeah, is it really worth that? And uh, I would say for those of us who are walking in in scripture and walking with the Lord, hopefully our priorities are straight. It doesn't necessarily mean they all are, but we, we at least strive for that. Well, yeah. we are wasting a ton of time on this. So we, we're going to have to breeze through the rest of our things that we have to talk about. But that was an important aspect of the movie. And I thought we should deal with it. Yeah. The reality is real. That was, I, we kind of touched on it a little bit at the beginning of the podcast when we were discussing surrogates, that seems to be a major theme going through this movie. And like uh, the monologue at the beginning where Wade is ex- doing a ton of exposition, just, you know, trying to set up the world, doing a lot of world building in a few words. Mm-hmm. He says, in the Oasis, you can do anything, you can go anywhere. But people, they will go to the Oasis for the things they can do, but they stay in the Oasis for the things they can be. And I thought that was a very important point because when he meets Artemis later, he falls in love with her avatar, but she keeps telling him that, that he won't like her in the real world. And even H keeps saying, you know, she could be anyone, you know, she's, she's hacking your heart to get to your head. And I mean, there was so much of this going on. It's like, you can't trust what you see in the Oasis. It's not the real thing. And, and then it kind of was thrown at you that even H you see is a big muscular avatar that feels male and it turns mm. out that it's a woman and in the movie she's an older woman and like in her 30s and yep uh so i think she was almost speaking from her own experiences like artemis could be anyone because i'm anyone you know yeah it could be a 30 a, a year old guy living in his mother's basement in suburban detroit yeah so I just thought it was interesting that they spent so much time talking about um, what was real and what wasn't real. And that was a major line, was a major line from Halliday as well. Near the end, he, he, he was telling Wade, I created the Oasis because I didn't feel at home in the real world and I couldn't connect with people. As terrifying and painful as reality can be, it's also the only place you can get a decent meal because reality is real. I think that that was something that, that Halliday himself struggled with. You know, on the flip side of that, Wade didn't seem to have that struggle because when he met his friends in the real world, he didn't seem shocked at all. 
Yeah, it that was an interesting creative choice because Wade seemed particularly the scene where he and Artemis are in the club and he's professing his love to her, mm -hmm. which is the culmination of that entire, you know, could be a 30-year-old guy in, mm -hmm. in uh, his mother's basement idea. Wade seemed more than anyone to be uh, enamored with the virtual reality of the Oasis. And when you see his home life... Mm -hmm. You can see why. <laughs> yeah, you, you really can. And it, even the way that the initial scene with his aunt's... Boyfriend. Boyfriend. Yeah, and I, I just realized one of the things that I found weird was that I don't think he ever called her his aunt. He called her... His mother's sister, <laughs> which which is the definition of aunt. Yeah. But why wouldn't he use the word aunt? Anyway, he is abused mm -hmm. um, by a long string of terrible boyfriends that his aunt has. So he really is escaping a really crappy situation. So, you know, I would have expected him to have more trouble meeting the people in real life i would have expected more of like when he discovered that show was an 11 year old kid mm -hmm. you know how he reacted so weird to that but he he took h in stride and in the book that was a much bigger reveal hmm. uh, what i thought was interesting was that samantha was really a very beautiful young woman and she was overly conscious of her birthmark mm -hmm. but it wasn't that disfiguring, and I think that it, it was one of those things where the things that we don't like in ourselves are sometimes, you know, like, and I, I could say this as much to myself, you know, when I look in the mirror, I don't like what I see. And I think that's true mm. of, for most people. Amen to that. Yeah, but other people may see us differently than the way we see ourselves. And I think that in a virtual world where you can create your own avatar and be, you know, you know put that false face forward... I think you put too much importance on looks. And I think that that was one of the things that this kind of brought out was, is that people are not happy with who they are. And so they beat somebody else in the Oasis. And that was the draw. And that's what kept them there was that they could be whoever they wanted to be and not be stuck in their own bodies. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also comes to the level of contentment that God gave us as Christians that, you know, obviously is something we've harped on in the past, that happiness is circumstances, joy is attitude. And mm -hmm. I really feel like that this is one of those situations where as Christians, we have a one up on the rest of the world because our goals and our purpose in living is not so superficial. And so we don't have this angst that goes along with not being happy with who we are because we are sinners and we can be happy in what Christ has done for us. And so our joy comes from a different source than our inner happiness. And so I think that that is one of the parallels we can draw with this is they were going into the oasis to try and find purpose because their lives were purposeless and mm -hmm. they were escaping reality because they had the reality was a bummer. I mean, that's what that's what Z called it, right? <laughs> it's like reality is a bummer. So everybody goes into the oasis because, you know, it's just no fun being out here in the real world. And. To be honest, escape, escapism comes in all forms, and we don't have to have a virtual world to be escapists. That's for sure. I know that a lot of people today escape into, it's maybe not as virtual as the Oasis, but, you know, into social media and games and movies and books, and it, it can come in all forms. It's interesting to think whether or not that that's necessarily, it's just like with the pop culture question, is that a sin for Christians? Is it wrong for Christians to be escapists. I don't know. I think it can be. I think it can it, be. If it, yeah, it comes down to how high a priority it is. Right. Yeah. If, if we're escaping God's will uh, and not doing his work and not seeking his mission and his, his will for our lives and we're, we're hiding from God, then it's definitely a sin. Yeah. If your escapism is interfering with your witness, mm -hmm. it's, it's got to be a sin. Right. So what is a Christian's purpose? Well, that comes from a variety of places in Scripture. <laughs> and one of the ones I wanted to touch on was Ecclesiastes, because the whole culmination of Ecclesiastes is the preacher who is going through all of the things that life offers, you know, the world offers, you know, women and money and success and fame. And, and he he's finding them. The, they're just there's really nothing there. 
just nothing to offer him. And when he comes to the very end of all of this testing the world to find what brings purpose, he comes to this conclusion, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. That was the conclusion. It's like nothing else is going to work. We just have to fear God and, and keep his commandments. It's that's our duty. You bring to mind uh, also Micah 6, 8. Mm-hmm. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, mm-hmm. to love kindness and to walk humbly with the Lord. Mm, yeah. And Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That's a really good one. At the end of all the Gospels, well, I think almost all of them. I'm not sure all of them. Do all of them have the Great Commission? I think they all do. It's, I think it's, it's definitely in the Synoptic Gospels. I'm not sure about yeah. John, though. That, that's the one where... Uh, Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that that's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Mm-hmm. That was the mission God gave us. We're supposed to be going out there, sharing the gospel and making disciples. And that's a purpose. I mean, when your commander gives you a mission... <laughs> you shouldn't be hiding in the barracks, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be uh not good. <laughs> See, and then uh I had in here Ephesians one three through fourteen. This is Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Je- Jesus Christ. This one's kind of a long, but I, I think it's it's useful to hear. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace for with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and in insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth read all that so we could get to this in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we exist, we exist because God called us. He, he brought us into being. He predestined us as adoption into the family of Christ. And then he gave us purpose in that we're to be, bring him glory in what we do. And I thought it was very interesting because in this passage, it talks about that we've obtained an inheritance. That's what they're Mm -hmm. fighting for in the Oasis. Uh, They're fighting for an inheritance because they're trying to inherit all that Halliday left. Mm -hmm. His stock in the company. The entire Oasis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just think it's interesting. It's like what they're fighting for in the movie is what we already have. In Christ Jesus, we already have an eternal inheritance, riches of in glory beyond measure. And we already have that as Christians. So interesting parallel, though. Yeah, I like that one. So one of the other things that they make a point of in the movie is, uh, and this is, I think, probably one of the more common themes that, that we encounter in movies is the importance of, uh, of family. Mm-hmm. And in this um, one, it's not even blood family. It's the family you choose. Right. Yeah. yeah. It crosses that line, you know, between teamwork and and family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to come up with a different word for it. I just couldn't do it. Family really is the the word. Yeah. It is the essence of it. Or they uh, they call them clans, too. Yeah. In the Oasis. Some of the, the lines from the movie that caught my attention. No man is a failure who has friends. Which is ironic because it's spoken by one of the bad guys. Yeah. And then uh, during the rousing speech, right before the the big battle, uh, Wade tells everybody, literally everybody, 
that he found something bigger in the Oasis. He found his cause. He found his friends and he found his love. And yeah, it's sort of a groaner, but I found love. Yeah. Found my love. Then near the end when he when he wins, it's he, he wins. He's the one who wins, right? He had the extra life and he played it. But he would not have been able to do that if he hadn't had his friends helping him. Yeah. And so he's when they when he gets his his prize at the end, he says, I'm splitting it with my clan. We're going to run things together. And Og says, that's a good choice. And, you know, it actually, Z's understanding of that, of the the understanding that he comes to about finding his his uh, his family through his friends, that actually is the final test in the movie. Mm. Um, because what happens when he sits down to si- sign the contract, he understands that one of Halliday's greatest regrets or really Halliday's greatest regret was his lost friendship with Ogden Morrow. Mm. And it's Z's, the understanding that Z comes to as he competes and works with the people who become his friends. Mm-hmm. It's that understanding that that feeds to his decision, his determination mm-hmm. that signing that contract isn't right. Yeah. And I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. Was that in the book, too? You know, I don't remember if that's that scene or a scene like it was actually in the book. Huh. I feel like it might have been, but in the book, Morrow and Halliday just had a falling out. Mm. Uh, I don't think they ever said specifically what it was, but it, it's alluded to that Morrow left the company, GSS, over distress that so many people were getting entirely lost. They were escaping through the Oasis. Yeah. And Morrow and his then wife, Karen, left and went and started a nonprofit uh, educational software company. Hmm. But after Halliday died, you know, everybody started uh, interviewing Morrow. And he took over the Halliday's journal. Uh, You know. That wasn't in the book. (laughs) it, It wasn't in the book. And I don't think, you know, in the movie, that whole building where you could go and research all of the Halliday stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't think that was in the book either. I think all the research they had to do was, you know, good old fashioned uh, gumshoe work. Hmm. Yeah. Which, again, would have been difficult to translate and and all that. Well, it it gave them the the Halliday's journal gave them a chance to do flashbacks into Halliday's life, which I think is there. You have to have a vehicle for that in a movie. And I think that they worked that out really well, where they could just watch a snapshot out of his life kind of thing. Yeah. I, I think that was valuable in the way they presented it. But I, I felt oh. like I, I lost what the what was going on and because you were so so looking. And I, I'd have to go back and watch the movie again because I've only seen it once. But I felt like I was missing some of the gist of those scenes because I was so busy trying to find what the clue was that they were looking mm-hmm. for that I missed the conversation that like the the one where Halliday and Morrow were having their their conversation. I missed about the date. I missed the value of that conversation because I was not paying attention to what they were actually ta- talking to each other about. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it, that would have been easy to do. Yeah, yeah. And so I really felt like that, that because of that, I missed what was the tension between their friendship. And I felt like that that was important. You know, the tension between them was important because it ended up being a key uh, to the end of the movie. And and I felt like that there was something lost there because of the way they presented it. I just I wasn't yeah, paying the, attention closely enough. The the movie never addresses the tension it, it, only to say that. Uh, Halliday forced Morrow out, um, but it never actually says what it was about, only that it was his greatest regret. Mm -hmm. And I I think you're right. I think that was a little bit distracting that they never uh, revealed anything about that. On top of that, they never said they were not going to reveal anything about it. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, you're, so how does this, you know, getting distracted by not knowing? Yeah. And then Og is there at the end to like present Wade with his winnings. But if he wasn't part of the company, how could he do that? And I felt like I was missing something. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, it was my only regret about the end of the movie was that I felt like I'd missed something between Morrow and Halliday. And, and that was why 
this whole thing about the friends and the family and and being a clan and sharing the the rewards and all that it it meant something and i know it meant something but i just mm-hmm. i felt like i'd missed exactly what that relationship was there i think that's probably a regrettable creative choice that they mm-hmm. couldn't come up with a better way to address all of that real quick i i just checked the book and the archive where they go and and they meet the curator and everything in the book that's actually the uh anorex almanac which is just a um a reference material that's you know a thousand pages long mm-hmm. and that's what everybody's doing the research in but uh you know having having a physical or virtual virtual location. physical place <laughs> well it, it worked visually let's put it that way yeah it worked exactly it, worked it, it makes sense in the visual medium of the movie right yeah i guess that you know the whole point of it was that wade was able to learn from Halliday's mistakes and and i think that that was probably one of the core premises of the movie was that we can learn from other what other people do wrong and especially in a mentoring kind of position that they end up kind of being in. You mentioned that Og was more the mentor in the book, but I really felt like Halliday is Wade's mentor in in the movie. And yeah. that whole scene where they're they're discussing things in the end while Wade's being thrown around in the back of a van. But <laughs> um, oh, I don't want you to end the entire Oasis by accident. Yeah, on your first day. On your first day. It's okay on like the you know next week. <laughs> Which. I thought it was interesting, you know, we, we were discussing about, you know, is reality real? I thought it was very interesting that the, at the end, they decided to make, take actually close the Oasis for two days a week mm-hmm. so that people would be forced to live in reality for a couple days, you know, out of every week, which I think was a good choice, you know? Yeah. And, and it kind of ties back in also to our lives where, you know, God said to take a day of rest. I mean, it's like whatever you do, you work heartily, but even God rested on the seventh day. So take a rest for your from your obsessions, you know, <laughs> break yourself out of them. We mentioned that, you know, a lot of the contest was actually fueled by Halliday's regrets. Mm-hmm. And that actually, that got me thinking about one of my, one of my personal struggles, which is uh, regrets over uh, past mistakes and, and how we're supposed to deal with it as Christians. Mm-hmm. And that brought to mind uh, two specific things. First, that as Christians, we know that our mistakes, our all of our past sins have already been paid for. Mm-hmm. And, and future sins. Yeah, exactly. Every sin we've done, every sin we're doing, every sin we are going to do, they've all been paid for on the cross. And one of my personal struggles is separating taking responsibility uh, because i i i don't want to say you know what i'm not responsible for that i don't want to put it all on christ and that's one of the drives for me not wanting to sin because i i don't want to add another nail you know another hammer on the nail from using that old uh, analogy mm-hmm. of uh, of i nailed christ to the cross but we really have to accept the fact that every sin that we're going to do, he's already paid for, mm-hmm. and that has to work into our our Christian life. We don't forget our sins. We learn from them. Mm-hmm. But Halliday, you know, he— He obsessed with he, them. <laughs> he lived with them. Mm-hmm. He never corrected them. And then he confessed them through this game— but only after he was dead. Mm-hmm. So his regrets did him no good at all. Mm-hmm. And that bugs me a bit, uh, both in the book and the movie. You know, he confesses these two major errors in his life, but it's too late. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the purpose of our witness is to to work with the soil that the Holy Spirit has already planted mm-hmm. and to help lead others to not be too late, yeah. I guess. Well, and it's it goes along with that. All things work together for good for, you know, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So God's going to work it out. And yeah. we don't have to live with the regrets 
but we do have to ask for forgiveness. And I think that taking responsibility for the things that we've done wrong and and asking God, first of all, for forgiveness, because we didn't nail him to the cross with those things. Mm-hmm. We confess them and we ask for forgiveness. I think that's the step that a lot of Christians and a lot of people who want to be Christians fail to do. It's like, oh, God gave us the free gift of salvation. Oh, I want that. Um, it comes with a little precursor first. It's like you have to admit <laughs> you're a sinner. It's like yep. it's like that, you know, when if you're an alcoholic and you have to go through the, you know, the the twelve step program. Yeah, the twelve step program. You first have to admit you're, you know, got a problem, right? And then you gotta start taking the steps. And God wants us to to acknowledge that we have sinned. It isn't enough for us to just, oh yeah, I'll take that. That's shiny, shiny, pretty, you know, eternal life and salvation. I, I'm gonna take that. No, we have to first say, Yes, God, I am a dirty, rotten, filthy bloody rag of a sinner Mm -hmm. and I have done wrong and I'm going to turn away from those things that I have done. I'm not going to do them anymore. And I'm asking for your forgiveness. And that's the step we have to take. And then we have to let go of it. It's like you said, as Christians, should we live with regret? No, because once we've given it to God, we're supposed to let go, not take it back. And that that's so hard. Yeah. Uh, even that's where that's where I fail most more often than not mm-hmm. is letting go. Yeah. And God doesn't want us to hold on to it because he's already forgotten it. Once we've confessed it, it's as far from the east as is from the west. It's forgotten. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to hold on to it anymore. And that's the freeing nature. But it's also the hard thing is, you know, to, to let go of that burden of sin. And to move yeah. and to turn away from it because we, we tend to want to, you know, ask for free. What, what is that? It's, like it's easier to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I've used that in a business environment a couple of times. <laughs> well, th- that's probably all we can fit in over an hour. I suspect we are going to be over an hour on this episode, but that's okay. You guys enjoy listening to us chatter, don't you? Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> You can join the conversation by joining us on uh, Facebook and look for the Are You Just Watching group and ask to join. And we're hoping to discuss this movie more at length uh, later on there. And we'd love for your input. You can also comment on the show notes, which will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 80. We're up to 80 episodes. Isn't that cool? Yay! Yay! You can call us at 903-231-2221 and leave a voicemail. You can email us at feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. We'd really, really appreciate you guys coming and supporting us on Patreon. We want to give special thanks to our regular patrons, uh, Craig Hardy, Richard French, and Stephen Brown II. They have been giving to us for quite a while, and we really appreciate their support. Thank you, folks. Yeah, but we could use a little bit more, guys. I mean... You know, three people holding us together is uh, putting the burden mm-hmm. on them is kind of cruel. So f- if you could check us out at patreon.com slash are you just watching and consider giving us a small monthly gift. It, we will not abuse it, I promise. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Eve Franklin. I'm on Twitter at R-E-N-C-H-E-P-L-E. And we would ask that you subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And yeah, we haven't had a a review in quite some time. It would be nice to get a couple new ones. Yeah, it would be nice, but uh, we understand everybody's busy. And if you make it all the way to the end of one of these long podcasts, um, you're definitely a good listener. So (laughs) thank you so much for listening. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. Are You Just Watching is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Subscribe to more of our podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodlemix.net.